We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. I literally thought the first time I played it, this is going to be a really big deal because it had so many elements of what people are excited about. That's sports, that's competition, it's money. And uh, it was a situation where I pinched myself and said, where's this been all my life? And then you usually ask the proverbial question, how is this legal? You are listening to Fantasyland, the podcast that covers everything you didn't know you wanted to know about fantasy sports. I'm your host, Peter Overzet, and in this episode, we are going to discuss daily fantasy sports, aka DFS. In just a few short years, DFS has made all kinds of waves and changed the fantasy landscape forever. It's turned hobbyists into millionaires overnight aired somewhere in the vicinity of 1 billion commercials, you might have to check my numbers there, suffered a scandal that ended up being a non-scandal and subsequently caught the eyes of the media and lawmakers. If it sounds like there's a lot for us to unpack in this episode, there is. And honestly, we're not going to get to everything in just one show. But what we are going to do is look at DFS through the eyes of some people who have had their lives changed in really amazing ways And we're going to see how those stories highlight both the potential of the DFS industry and also the challenges that currently face it. Over the course of this show, we'll hear about the current state of DFS from people like Dan Bach, who is a fixture in the industry as a podcaster and radio host. We'll talk to professional players about their rise to the top of the industry, and we'll hear from a legal expert and an academic on the ongoing battle DFS is currently facing across the country. Whether you know it or not, you've probably seen Drew Dinkmeyer's face before. Maybe you saw it in the Wall Street Journal article that covered his transition from a day job to full-time DFS pro. 
Or maybe you've seen replays of Drew winning a million dollars on the ever-present DraftKings ads that run during football season. But before Drew was one of the highest profile names in DFS, he was a financial analyst, moonlighting as a fantasy writer at a site called Fantastics. I stumbled onto Daily Fantasy uh, basically through a subscriber email. I had a few days in a row where a subscriber had emailed in asking a question. And usually these questions are related to a pickup or a drop. And so the first few days when they asked, you know, which pitcher is the best pitcher today, I didn't entirely understand if they were just trying to trade uh, to win a category late in a week or what it was. And so after the third time, I responded, hey, you know, so-and-so is the best pitcher. But just out of curiosity, what are you using this information for? Because I don't understand how you could be in such a league that's so active, we were able to make all these transactions all the time. They said, oh no, I'm playing daily fantasy sports. And that was the first time I had ever heard of it. So I, I used the Google machine and started looking around and I saw an article about a user named Hicksville Hunk turning $60 into 60000 And so pride sort of took over and I deposited $60 and started playing daily fantasy. If Drew Dinkmeyer is one of the most known commodities in DFS, then one of the biggest mysteries is a user that goes by the name Condia. Condia plays hundreds of contests every day across various sports. He's so ubiquitous in the lobbies of FanDuel and DraftKings that he inspires his own discussion threads on sites like Roto-Grinders and Reddit. These discussions usually start with a question like, who the hell is Condia? And then fill up with comments that range from grudging respect to wild conspiracy theories. Adding to the mystery surrounding Condia is that there's another DFS user who often has a similar lineup playing under the username Lucor. In truth, Condia and Lucor are longtime friends, Charles Chon and Nick Dunham. And they talk to us about how they went from playing in a friend's fantasy football league to becoming some of the most feared players in the world. According to Charles, and we'll probably refer to him uh, as Condia throughout the rest of this episode, he used to spend 40 hours a week doing research in a fantasy league versus his friends. Then that competitive drive found DFS. In 2010, I was uh, reading an, a fantasy football article written by Andy Behrens. And in that article, he had a link to FanDuel. And he talked about playing for real money on that site. So I checked it out, deposited 100 bucks, uh, doubled up, and... I thought it was easy money at that time. I didn't know like um, how to analyze whether it was a profitable play or anything. I just thought that I was good at it. So that season, I believe I made about $7,500. Um, and so heading into that following season in 2011, I decided to invest all my money into this thing that I thought I was good at. But uh, I got off to a very rough start, and um, it was a lot more difficult than I anticipated, but it ended up working out. And uh, Nick joined me, I think, uh, about two or three seasons into it, probably in 2012 or 13. Uh, he quit his job as a CPA, and uh, we worked together full-time ever since. If daily fantasy sports are a gold rush, then one of the people selling picks and shovels is Dan Bach. As the voice of Roto-Grinders daily podcast in his own SiriusXM show, Bach has been able to create a career for himself in an industry that he loves. According to Bach, the only limiting factor for DFS in the early days was awareness. 
I think I was a 27, 28 year old guy at the time and said to myself, like, wow, you know, this is awesome. Like, you know, I can't imagine anybody not liking this once they actually learn about it. And that was the big thing was nobody knew about it. Like I tell friends, have you tried Draft Street or FanDuel at the time? And they'd be like, I have no idea what you're talking about. But I knew just how much I kind of fell in love with it the first week or two that I played it that it was going to be very popular. It was just a matter of kind of getting the word out about it. That lack of awareness was a real problem. Even though FanDuel and DraftKings are both worth hundreds of millions of dollars today, it wasn't long ago that they were struggling startups. DraftKings began out of the spare bedroom of one of the co-founders, and FanDuel didn't even start out as a DFS company. Originally, FanDuel was called HubDub, and they ran predictions markets. It wasn't until they realized they weren't making any money that they pivoted to fantasy sports. Here's Nigel Eccles, the CEO of FanDuel, talking about how when they shifted to fantasy sports, they were trying to solve problems that fantasy players always complain about. So what we looked at, and we actually talked to fantasy players, we weren't fantasy players ourselves, so that was a bit of a handicap, but it meant we talked to players and they said a couple of things they really hated. They didn't like the randomness of the draft, so when you play season long, your draft order, so you can get a great position, get number one, or you can get 12, and they didn't like the impact of injuries on their season, so... You could pick a player, top pick, guys injured, like say Des Bryant, and it kind of raised your season. Um, and they didn't like the fact that their friends dropped out during the season. Despite the fact that FanDuel identified some inefficiencies in season-long fantasy sports, that didn't translate into the company taking off immediately. The first couple of years were really hard. Like that's the one thing I'd say about our company was nobody really believed in it. They felt it was niche. They thought that people would never come out of season long. They felt it was too hard. Like we would pitch VCs and say, "Hey, I'm a big sports fan, but you know this takes too long." I'm, or I didn't win. I don't think this would go mass market. So really, from 2009 to 2011, we were really on a skeleton crew. But the core was that our players always loved our product. From like 2009, when the product was kind of terrible. Like in 2009, you know, the Yahoo and ESPN, CBS products were really schlocky. They really were not good products and people were loving it. And I always think that if I take a product that, if I take a category where the product's bad, but people are engaged and make the product good, then that should be a business case. And so we launched in 2009, our product wasn't great, but people were really engaged. And so there was a combination of continuing to optimize the product, continue to ramp up marketing and, and optimize the efficiency. Just like the site struggled to get traction initially, some of the pros said it was bumpy for them in the beginning. My very first few weeks playing daily fantasy sports, I was getting killed and I didn't understand what I was missing. You know, I analyzed seasonal fantasy sports for a few years. I won all my local leagues. So I'd had all this success and I didn't understand why I wasn't translating to daily fantasy sports. And part of that was just I needed to learn about bankroll management and different things like that because I was playing far too much of my capital on every single night. And I was basically lending myself to the variance of the performance on a night to night basis and not giving my, my skill a chance to really shine through by managing my bankroll appropriately. And Condia says that his initial foray into NBA DFS was also rough. We got off to a rough start and 20 days into it or so, we were like, this is our last day. If we lose, we're done. If we win, then maybe we'll play for a little longer and see how it goes. And happened to turn out that we ended up starting a good run that day and uh, that uh, started our NBA career. And uh, I guess uh, we've gone through a lot of bad runs where we felt like quitting. I think uh, this is a game of streaks sometimes if you're not hedging very much. 
So, yeah, we've run into a lot of bad runs in our career. Those swings that Condia is talking about, Dinkmeyer says that they require their own kind of mental toughness. There's definitely moments when you just wonder because the lifestyle and the stress associated with kind of investing on a daily basis, significant amounts of capital, and then seeing your results, that stress can sort of build up and certainly make you wonder, well, should I have chosen something that had a little bit more stability to it that I know I'm getting my paycheck every two weeks? But you eventually you eventually kind of just settle in and, and get accustomed to it. The pros we're talking to are among the most successful in the industry, and even they are saying that DFS is hard and the stress can be insane. I mean, I'm the furthest thing from a DFS pro, but I had to stop playing NBA DFS last year because just the pure stress of trying to update multiple lineups around lineup lock as the injury news came in became so overwhelming to me that I literally felt myself having like a panic attack. And I said, okay, I just need to step away from this. So when someone like Dan Bach says it takes a special kind of person to grind daily fantasy sports, I feel much better about not being cut out for high volume tournament play. Yeah, I mean, I definitely think it takes a certain type of guy to be able to put in so much time and energy and focus into what they're doing. I mean, this is their life. And they've been very successful doing that. But like, you know, it doesn't mean like you can't have a big hit and even win life changing money. That happens to a lot of people playing daily fantasy sports. But the true grind are the people who play, you know, the thousands of games every single day, cash games, 50 50s, head to heads, the occasional tournament, the discipline that they have. I think is probably what kind of separates them from your average player out there because we all will get discouraged and say something's not going right. You know what? I got to change the way I'm doing things where those guys can look at it and say, hey, you know what? I've made a lot of money doing this. Let's just stay with the system. I think that's probably the hardest thing for your average guy to be able to understand or develop if they wanted to kind of become a professional player. While players like Condia, Lucor, and Drew Dinkmeyer might have struggled from time to time, eventually they found success. And in the case of Condia, so much success that the sites actually had to change some of their rules because of him. Especially early on, I felt like there were so many fish out there and that it was free money. So I just bet as much as I could. I maxed out my credit cards and just took every game on the table. And this forced all the websites to create limits on users uh, so they don't take every game on the board. I guess uh, I always understood that for the websites, it would be best for them to limit players like myself. Uh, So I never really argued with them about it or anything. I just played by the rules and I've always tried to maximize my action. I feel like My teams are better than anyone else's, so every game that I take is more money for me. Even though Condia realized that the sites would want to limit the number of games he could play, that didn't mean that he and his partner Nick Dunham couldn't try to exploit certain edges. Remember Nick's screen name, Lucor? Well, the L in Lucor is actually a 1. Nick says that the 1 used to give them a very real edge. The head-to-head lobby was automatically ordered alphabetically, and if you had the number one, you were at the top of the lobby. It actually made a huge difference on how many head-to-heads you'd get matched. So we decided to put a one there instead of an L. And Lucor is a Latin word meaning to win. (laughs) Nick also points out one of the other challenges with playing DFS at a high level. 
if you somehow navigate the shark-infested waters after you make your initial deposit and you learn to deal with the bankroll swings in the variants that Condia and Dinkmeyer talk about, there's a new and perhaps more difficult challenge waiting for you. You know, once you build your bankroll up, you do have to play a pretty significant portion of your action against other people that are trying to do this for a living. So the next thing that would come into play is what your skill level is. And the only way to determine that is by testing it out. So if you find out that this isn't for you, you're probably not going to do very well while you're figuring that out. Drew has actually gotten used to the constant swapping of money with other pros. When you're a DFS player, I think it's just a natural thing that you you tend to remember the losses and you tend to remember the struggles a little bit more than you do the big wins and the big moments. I think athletes talk about that a lot as well. So anyone in a kind of a competitive field, you hang on to those losses a little bit more. So I think that's kind of the approach that a lot of us would take. And I know that there's a number of times where I've talked to people at live events and I've been like, man, you, you really got me good last year. And they're like, nope, nope, you were beating me all last year. And I'm like, I have it in a, in a spreadsheet. Like, I'm very clear on this. And, and they're like, nope, nope, I just remember you taking my money on this event or something like that. So it's, it's interesting how, uh, how our brains work. Dink now seems to categorize his run-ins with other pros as friendly rivalries. But for someone like Condia, that isn't always the case. Just because you're one of the biggest sharks out there doesn't mean that a bigger shark can't come along. I wouldn't call them friendly rivalries, uh, <laughs> but yeah, we've uh, dueled it out against some um, good players, and uh, I guess uh, we've gotten the best of them up until Max Dallery. I guess current username is Sahil Sud. He came after us 2014-15 NBA season, and uh, we were wagering six figures a day or per slate, I should say. So like sometimes there are two or three slates uh, in a day, so it would climb up there. We played him about 20 times and he got the best of us. And I just got to a point where I felt like it wasn't worth the stress for this uh, ego contest. Okay, let's take a minute to do the math on what Charles is saying here, because it's really crazy. And as a guy who plays $5 head to heads, uh, I need to just get to the bottom of how much money we're talking here. So he's saying that they're playing at least $100,000 per slate. And then that's multiplied by somewhere between one and three slates a day, which then occurred over a 20-day period. So anywhere between two and six million dollars were at stake against just one user, Sahil Sud. And if you think that two million is important, the crazy thing is that in talking to Condia, you get the impression that ego might have been the larger consideration. I guess I did it because I still wanted to control the lobby. I wanted people to know that, all right, if you really want to do this big time, you have to go through me first. So he'll pass that challenge and now he's taken up that role. This is probably a good point to pause and think about what we've heard thus far because it speaks to both the potential that DFS has as an industry and also the challenges it faces. On the one hand, the idea that these startup DFS companies could grow from having their headquarters in a spare bedroom to having billion-dollar valuations is incredible. And the pros we've talked to said that they went from $100 deposits to playing $2 million in action. It's nothing short of incredible, and it really is worth recognizing that these are stories of people succeeding with nothing but their own ability. 
But these stories also highlight the challenges that DFS faces. Condia told us that he got his start by investing all of his money, and he also told us that he plays DFS full-time with a partner. The implications of both of these facts are obvious. There are no doubt other players who have maxed out their credit cards and don't have anything to show for it. You can also bet that the DFS companies wouldn't be able to draw in new users if their advertisement said, hey, come play against a team of pros who spend 80 hours a week trying to take your money. But it's also important to think about those issues in context, a context which the media has often ignored in its coverage of DFS. In a 2016 article in the New York Times, former Grantland writer Jay Caspian Kang recounted his experience losing money in DFS to players like Drew Dinkmeyer. The ostensible point of the article was that the DFS ecosystem exists by taking the money of new users, a practice which the article calls bum hunting. But if you read between the lines, what Kang is actually complaining about is that the sites aren't lining up games for him that he can beat. And that complaint reflects an almost insane level of entitlement. It really amounts to the notion that you should be able to watch sports as much or as little as you want to and then be able to play DFS and win, even if there are people who know more about the game than you do. Remember, Dink told us he struggled when he first started playing, and Condia was doing so poorly at NBA that he considered quitting. So the complaint in the Times article is unlikely to generate a lot of sympathy from the pros we talked to. In fact, even though Condia wasn't named in the Times article, he told us he's used to drawing the ire of DFS players who lose to him and then go online and complain about it. He actually considers that a positive. I think it's flattering. I think uh, most people feel that way because they respect me. So I just take it as a positive. And uh, I know a lot of people say mean things or accuse me of certain things, but I don't really care what they think. Condia has some pretty straightforward advice for anyone who wants to be like him. What you put into it is what you're going to get out of it. If you only want to spend an hour a day just putting teams in and picking some contests, you know, you're probably not going to win very much money doing that. If you spend a lot of time, I think uh, hard work pays off. So it's a balance between just being patient, disciplined, motivated. And, you know, if you got all those, then you're probably going to do well in this. We should point out that life for the pros we talk to isn't all about joylessly grinding fantasy sports and sucking the entertainment out of something that's supposed to be fun. They all told us stories about getting to enjoy themselves. One of the ways that the DFS sites try to inject fun is through the live final events that they hold for their end-of-season championships. These live finals are often destination events held at places like a Caribbean resort, a Las Vegas sportsbook, or the Playboy Mansion, if you remember the story of Pam Miles from episode two. Dan Bach says that the live finals are worth all the hype that they receive. To be around a, in a room with people who share that same passion of playing daily fantasy sports is really, really neat. And being able to compete against some of the very best in the game, because typically the very best are making it to these live finals, I think is a big desire for some of the players. Not everyone, you know, not a lot of people don't care about that, but uh, it is for me. And, you know, a lot of people like to draw comparisons to poker and daily fantasy. I don't think anybody would say that there's necessarily a lot of camaraderie sometimes uh, with the game of poker because you're playing the game at the same table as these people and that's what's being broadcast. 
But with Daily Fantasy, as soon as we submit our lineup, you know, we're all in the same place. And you can learn about people. I've made some great friends in this industry that I would have never met in my life at a lot of these live finals and, and meetups. So, you know, I think that's what, you know, I enjoy about it, kind of putting a face sometime to the screen names out there and obviously competing on the biggest stage. And then and let's face it, the payouts in some of those live finals, they don't suck. Nick Dunham told us a story about him and Condia attending a live final. Although we'll let you be the judge of whether this qualifies as fun. We just got back from the Playboy Championship that FanDuel puts on. And I guess uh, this year was a little bit more tame than last year. Um, But last year, Charles and I ended up playing um, Tommy G and uh, Stevie, who works for Roto Grinders, in some pretty high stakes beer pong. Charles doesn't really drink too much, so we started playing, and I was drinking all of the beer. And we probably played, uh, I mean, had to be 10-plus games, and we just kept going double or nothing, double or nothing. And I don't remember what really happened after that, but I woke up in the morning, and I didn't remember getting back to my room or any of that stuff. And uh, I called Charles, and I was like, did we lose a bunch of money playing beer pong? And he's like, yeah, you owe Tommy G (laughs) $2,000. His partner, Charles, has a slightly different retelling of the story. Yeah, I kind of feel like Nick actually owes me $2,000, too, for dragging (laughs) me into playing when he was that drunk. Even though Condia might be out $2,000 from his high-stakes beer pong misadventures, it's tough to feel sorry for him. After all, he is somewhat notorious in the DFS community for having turned some of his winnings into a bright yellow Lamborghini. It's always been a dream of mine to own a Ferrari and a Lamborghini. So uh, I went through a a near-death experience uh, early last year, and uh, that's when I decided that I have the money to get these cars or to make my dreams come true. So I figured I should do that before, you know, before it's too late. And remember how we said that Drew Dinkmeyer won a million dollars? Well, that all came down to a Monday night football game. And when DraftKings realized that Drew was in a position to win the money, they put him up in a hotel and broadcasted his sweat as he rooted for Marquise Wilson of the Chicago Bears to help him secure the million-dollar prize. Going in, I was down basically like 1.3 points to start. So I just needed a a Marquise Wilson catch. And he got a catch on like the first drive. It might have even been the first passing play of the game. And I was like, okay, I'm in first. This is great. This is amazing. And then when you get that catch early, you just expect a bunch more catches to be coming. And they weren't coming. And everybody was catching up. Kind of going in, I thought, if I get 10 to 15 points, I'm in good shape. But I was sitting there with Marquise at like two and a half, three points. And I just, I didn't know if it was going to come. And so they got down to like the two or three yard line. And I thought, nah, this is not a spot that he's, he's going to catch a touchdown. I see Jeffrey. I see Bennett. Is there another one wide out? Yeah, he's out there. He's got one. He's got that's a run call and he kind of just ran a little drag route um over the middle and i saw that he was open i got up out of my seat and then when he caught it i screamed and then the next thing i saw was a flag flag and i remember the whole room was just super quiet one of my friends was yelling come on don't do this don't do this no come on and uh, we were just waiting for the penalty announcement. And the funny thing is the clip that they've used in the commercials and different things where, like, I'm kind of really celebrating. Hold on, yeah! the Saints! Hold on, the Saints! Yeah! 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 
it's actually not celebrating the touchdown. It's celebrating the penalty being called against the Saints. The success we've heard about from these pros certainly isn't how most people experience DFS. But it was also important to cover because they shine a light on both the promise of the DFS industry and also some of the potential pitfalls. On one hand, you can hear Condia's story about buying a Lambo and think to yourself, oh wow, if I'm good at DFS, maybe I could get a Lambo. And on the other hand, you also have to think to yourself, holy shit, I have to go play against someone who's already so good that he used his winnings to buy a Lambo? As someone who's tried his hand at playing a lot of NBA DFS, my experience from facing Condia is equal parts thrilling and terrifying. It's definitely exciting to see a lineup you've built go up against one of the top players in the world. I mean, you can't just sit down tomorrow and start playing chess with Gary Kasparov, and you certainly can't get into a pickup game with Steph Curry. But on almost any night of the week, you can go to FanDuel or DraftKings and play the best pros at stakes of your choosing. And yet at the same time, you also know it is so incredibly dumb to seek out a match against someone who wakes up in the morning and starts DFS research while you're on a conference call discussing second quarter West Coast sales numbers. We are going to take a quick break, but when we come back, we're going to hear all about the legal side of DFS, which over the past year has taken center stage in a way no one predicted. Just want to take a moment to tell you about our friends over at MyBookie. It doesn't matter if you're an experienced player or a first-time customer. MyBookie welcomes all to come and play, so quit waiting around and sign up today. Do you find yourself wanting to get into the sports betting action but have a lot of questions? You're not sure how to place those wagers? Don't sweat it. MyBookie's patient customer service team can walk you through the process. And the best part is, if you join now, you still have time to get involved in our incredible sign-up offer. Just log into MyBookie.ag and make your first deposit with the promo code RotoViz. MyBookie will match that first deposit halfway up until 50% to jumpstart your bankroll. And that's the top of a risk-free bet that risk-free bet will be available next week for the thanksgiving games more information coming on that on next tuesday's show but make sure you get involved in that offer for the 50 percent sign up bonus with the code rotoviz make sure you do your part to support your team this season hop on the gravy train and get involved in the action with my bookie once again that promo code is rotoviz for a 50 percent bonus you play you win you get paid i also want to let you know about our friends over at untucket the holidays are almost here and you know what that means there is gifts to be bought and i know recently that i got a gift off one of these on tucket shirts and i really appreciated it so i do think it's a smart way to go if you're trying to think of something to buy for some of your friends or the guy in your life make sure that you go and jump on over to on tucket what better gift than a stylish shirt that fits just right unlike most brands on tucket shirts are actually designed to be worn on tucked i'm not a big fan of tucking them in hence why i love on it as much as i do they are casual and sharp and you always look good when you're out and about with more than 50 plus fit combinations on tucket shirts look great on tall short slim and athletic guys of all ages again i am one of the taller guys uh, around my area anyway i don't know about around the world but uh, it fits me and i, I find it very hard to get the match in the, the arm length and the back length off them so on it fits me perfectly you can find your favorite Untucket style online or check out at one of their 80 bricks and mortar stores. Choose from wrinkle-free button-downs, super soft flannels, outerwear and more. 
So whether you're shopping for the perfect holiday gift or just trying to look smart, relaxed and stylish on your own, Untucket is the way to go. Right now, you can visit Untucket.com and use the code BLUE for 20% off at checkout. Once again, Untucket.com, promo code is BLUE for 20% off. Before the summer of 2015, DFS could probably be best considered as a niche hobby, but that would soon change. After raising an absurd $500 million from investors, DraftKings launched an advertising blitz in anticipation of the NFL season. For people like Pekko Hasoy, a professor at MIT who you might remember from our girls episode, these commercials quickly lost their novelty. The first time I saw the commercial, I was thought, oh, this is cool. I'm sitting DraftKings and FanDuel. They're getting kind of a big presence. And then it was like every single commercial was a DraftKings and FanDuel commercial. Dustin Gauker is a journalist who works for LegalSportsReport.com and covers the DFS and sports betting industries. He said he's never seen anything quite like that ad blitz. I think I wrote a story at one point that said, that there's a DraftKings uh, commercial on every 90 seconds or something if you, you know, took the number of commercials and divided by how much time went by. So it was, it was really crazy for a while. And aside from their frequency being annoying for television viewers, Pecco says that the ads triggered a larger problem for the DFS site operators. With that many commercials, it suddenly becomes very clear how much money is involved in this. If there are people who were not aware of DFS before, now they know that there's at least enough money to air all of those commercials. Along with the ads, the other thing Gauker says put DFS under the microscope was a situation in the fall of 2015 with Ethan Haskell, an employee at DraftKings. What happened was he inadvertently released some information about a contest at DraftKings, and it was before that anybody should have had it, any of that public knowledge. And it's, uh, I mean, that part of it is an interesting, and it, it was a kind of a big deal because there's a lot of data out there, you know, that can be used for contests, and there's a question about. Um, whether employees should be, you know, have access to this. So what happened was Ethan, in the middle of all this, also happened to win $350,000 in a contest at FanDuel. Now, these two things were, in my mind, never related, but they happened in very close proximity, and it kind of highlighted the idea that, hey, employees are playing, they possibly could have access to the data, we have no idea, the the industry is not regulated, there's no real safeguards other than, you. hey, we trust DraftKings and FanDuel to do the right thing. Despite the media latching on to the story, Gauker says it ended up being more of a non-story than anything. In retrospect, it was definitely framed by a lot of people kind of incorrectly. Uh, in my mind, he, de- he definitely didn't cheat. That never was a thing that happened. But it definitely triggered people's uh, imaginations when you have the proximity of these two events. Ethan leaking this data inadvertently and also winning the money. And it, yeah, it set up a lot of things in that uh, yeah, now, now if you're an employee of a daily fantasy sports site, you can't play daily fantasy sports somewhere else. So it's, uh, that was an almost immediate reaction from the industry to try to clean that up. Regardless of what happened with Haskell, Box says it was only a matter of time until DFS was going to come under more scrutiny. You know, was this inevitable? Was there going, if it wasn't Ethan Haskell's tweet that he sent out, was it going to be something else that was going to kind of spark the outrage for all the commercials? I tend to believe there was going to be something. 
I mean, the whole players on one site playing on another site had been happening for years. And hardly anybody had ever raised too much of a fuss at all about this taking place. But in retrospect, they look at it and realize, you know what, this does look really, really bad. Even if there's nothing wrong going on, it really looks bad. And optics was never an issue for Daily Fantasy, and it became an issue for Daily Fantasy overnight. As the commercials in Haskell's story drew the attention of attorney generals and federal investigators, the discussion of whether DFS was a game of skill or illegal sports gambling began to crop up. As investigations commenced, DraftKings and FanDuel insisted that their contests were games of skill and not chance, which made them legal under the Federal Unlawful Internet Gaming Enforcement Act of 2006. All the law really does is stop payment processors from uh, taking transactions based on online gambling. Now, the thing that that fantasy sports uh, eventually grew out of is the fact that there's a carve-out specifically in that law to say, hey, it's okay if you process transactions for fantasy sports. So that carve-out is where the DFS industry came from, but it doesn't expressly make it legal uh, on the federal level. And there's actually a provision uh, in the construction of that law, the UIGEA, that says basically, you know, it's yes, this is fine, but nothing in this law supersedes state law. So basically, the legality of fantasy sports hinges upon what's going on at the state level. Pekko Hasoy is intimately familiar with this debate surrounding DFS as gambling or a game of skill. She was approached by FanDuel in 2015 to do an in-depth study on the issue and was granted access to all of FanDuel's user and contest data to do so. The states can set any laws that are more rigorous than the federal law, and they're all phrased in different ways, right? So, um, you know, it might be, say, something is considered gambling if the outcome is predominantly determined by chance. Then there's a, a legal debate over what does predominantly mean, right? And that's not a mathematical question. That's a legal question. Gauker says a lot of this debate boils down to how people want to define gambling. It's both rhetoric and semantics at the same time, I think. DFS does not want to be called gambling because of the way that current state laws are written. If you're gambling, it's game over. If you're, if you're not gambling, you're a game of skill, you can continue doing what you're doing. So what did Pecco conclude from all of her research? I would say that in the, uh, in the question of skill versus chance, I would categorize these as a game of skill. I think that any activity you do lies on a spectrum that runs from chance to skill. And so you have to make a judgment on where you draw that line. But one of the things that we did is we looked at it in the context of other activities, things like uh, coin flipping and bicycle racing and stock market. So we put that on a spectrum so people can make their own judgment as to where they would draw the line. The pros like Dan Bach obviously agree with Pecco's findings. Daily fantasy is a skill game. And what I think we need to see is a, a better the ecosystem set up better where a lot of new players can play versus other new players in the beginning and as soon as they understand the game learn the game then they can move up and and play the better players and you know i think you know having a a lobby of head to head games that are just people who have maybe under 100 games that they've ever played would be a really good way to kind of go towards that Pecco says that how the sites set up their pricing actually determines the extent to which it is a game of skill or chance. If I am a game designer, how do you put the game on that spectrum such that it is a game of skill, but you can still keep the new people engaged? If FanDuel or DraftKings had a magic crystal ball and they could make 
perfect pricing. So every player was priced exactly what they're worth. Then it's not a game of skill anymore, right? Then it's a game of luck because everybody's priced exactly right. So you just fill your salary cap and whoever get, you know, whoever happens to catch the touchdown that weekend wins. So it's as your pricing gets worse that it becomes more a game of skill because then you can find the bargains. The other thing that will move you along that skill luck axis is to look at the skill distribution in your playing population, right? So if you have a playing population where you have a lot of guys that are really good and a lot of guys that are not so good, then that's going to be a game of skill. So the tighter your distribution of your playing population is, the more it becomes a game of luck. Because if you have two guys that are almost equally skilled, then, you know, flip a coin, which one of them is going to win? So one of the solutions people have proposed is to say, well, we should have sort of separate playing pools, right? So the people who are really experienced play in one and the new people play in another. But if you do that, you're now pushing yourself more towards a game of luck. You're kind of, you kind of have to balance those two things because if you want new players, you have to put in more luck. If you want it to be a game of skill, then it's going to be harder for those new players. The dichotomy between skill and luck is actually at the heart of the legal conversation surrounding DFS right now. Recently, the DFS industry enjoyed a big win in New York with legislature passing a bill legalizing and regulating fantasy sports and specifically DFS. It's a crucial victory as at one point in time, over 10% of DFS players were based in New York. This is a big deal because if uh, Cuomo signs it, it's game back on for New York. Now, if they had not become legal there with the, via the legislature, then yeah, it materially changes things. It could have it could change how future investments come in FanDuel and DraftKings. It, it just it hurts their bottom line. So they needed to be back in operation in New York. Uh, in time for the NFL season, and it appears that they will be. At the same time, it's not like it's New York. New York happened, and it's all over. Like they they won, and DFS is going to go on as as it was. It still is a big win, but the industry is still very unsettled, and you know that that, that might not get cleared up for years still. It's sometimes easy to forget how young DFS is as an industry. So much has happened in just a few years. It makes sense that there would be bumps along the way. Despite some of the legal uncertainty that still persists, Bach is hopeful the industry is headed in a good direction. We're going to kind of see a a gradual increase, you know, instead of the enormous uh, growth that we had seemingly overnight, I think it's going to be a process that's a slow build. And, uh, and I think that's fine. That's probably the way the industry should have grown in the beginning. Looking back at all the stuff we've covered in this episode, from the legal issues to the barrage of ads, even to how much work it takes to play DFS professionally, it's easy to forget that DFS is supposed to be fun. For people like Dan Bach and Drew Dinkmeyer, it seems like they've been able to strike a balance with making a living in the DFS industry while still maintaining that fun. Charles Chan, on the other hand, told us he burned out and that it became too stressful. He recently retired from playing NBA DFS and said that he might only play NFL for another year or two as well. Instead, he's focusing on the new site he founded with Nick, Roto War, where he shares his personal projections with subscribers. Scaling back his DFS volume has given him new perspective. I'm just starting to enjoy watching sports again because I retired from NBA. Like, I'm actually watching the playoffs, whereas when I was working, I'd only watch it just as research. It felt like work when I was watching games, but now I can actually enjoy it. But I know a lot of people need DFS to really enjoy sports. So like uh, if you play or try out DFS one day, um, I don't think you can ever go back to not 
playing DFS and watching sports because it makes games so exciting up until the last minute, even when there's blowouts. Ultimately, how you approach DFS is going to determine your relationship with it. The objectives of someone who wants to play full-time are not necessarily the same as someone who wants to treat DFS like a fun hobby where you also happen to have a chance to win a few bucks. You know, a lot of people play just for the engagement of it. They, they, they like the sweat of, you know, I have a roster of players. I watch them play. I watch the live football games or golf tournaments. And I, I, I'm watching my team along in real time and seeing how I'm scoring. That's fun. Like people, people enjoy doing that. Just have fun with it. I mean, I think that's why Daily Fantasy gets popular, because people have fun playing it. And, and I think that too often uh, that gets lost in when we talk about Daily Fantasy. People often talk about how much money they win, and I'm at fault. You know, you interview the big winners. You know, we're a, you know we play to that narrative a little bit, but I still think the crux of it is, you know what, it makes watching sports more fun than it is if you're not playing Daily Fantasy sports. Next time on Fantasyland, an episode all about predictions, featuring some great fantasy experts alongside the co-author of the book Super Forecasting, Dan Gardner. If you want to get better as a forecaster, you have to develop the skill. And how do you develop the skill? You develop it the way you develop any other cognitive skill. You practice, you get good feedback with clear feedback, and then you listen to, you look at your results. And when you fail, you analyze that failure and you say, why did I fail? How can I do better next time? Then you try again. Thank you for listening to Fantasyland, the podcast that covers everything you didn't know you wanted to know about fantasy sports. Special thanks to all of our great guests in this episode, Drew Dinkmeyer, Dan Bach, Charles Chon, Nick Dunham, Dustin Gauker, and Pekko Hasoy. The Nigel Eccles clips you heard are from the Recode Conference, and the live footage from Drew Dinkmeyer's Millie Maker Sweat is from DraftKings TV. Be sure to check the show notes or the episode write-up on rotoviz.com slash fantasyland for more information about our guests. If you've missed any of our earlier episodes, you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Also, please rate and review the show. It helps us find new listeners. Also, thanks to our sponsors, ffdraftprep.com and Rotoviz. Be sure to take advantage of their special offers to Fantasyland listeners. You can contact us via email at fantasylandpod at gmail.com. We are currently looking to add people to the Fantasyland team. If you are interested in joining, shoot us an email and follow us on Twitter at FantasylandPod. We'd love to hear from you. Our producers are Matthew Friedman, Fantasy Douche, and Patrick Corain. Our intern is Alan Jackman. And I'm your host, Peter Overzet. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. 
From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.